Daniel 3. It's Old Testament, so towards the back of your Bible. Uh, Daniel 3. Ezekiel 37. And if you are joining us from online today, uh, grab your Bibles. and uh, Okay, I'm not going to worry. That's, that's fine. No worries. Um, John 20. We have been live streaming, folks, and so this has been pretty awesome to have folks that have had to leave the area be able to follow us and to be able to follow us through these series, um, especially through the book of John. We've gotten some great feedback on people everywhere from New York to California to, to Kalamazoo. So it's been really kind of cool to see uh, folks that we've established relationship with be able to continue to follow us. Um, John 20. And we are going to start at verse 19. And this is after Jesus appeared to Mary at the tomb. Verse 19, chapter 20. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst. And he said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just again thank you for your presence in this place today. We know that even if the air isn't working, the Holy Spirit, that air is always working, Lord. And so we just thank you that we will have understanding because we're gathered here looking for you. We have come to seek you, Lord. And we've been promised that if we seek you with our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength, that you will indeed reveal yourself to us. You don't like to withhold your will from us. You don't like to um, have your children wondering who our Father is. You make yourself known. And it's through passages like this that we come and we are reminded of your beauty and your majesty and your power and our purpose. So remind us today, Lord, In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, we kind of need a reminder, don't we? We just celebrate Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving, we're talking about all the things that we're grateful for, all the things that God has done, and we gather together, and we are reminded of that. And the very next day, Black Friday, and it's called Black Friday for a reason. People are trampling 
one another for a 50-inch TV because we were thankful yesterday, but, oh, would we be a little bit more thankful. (laughs) Would we be a little bit more thankful if we just got there before everyone else did and we got this, 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 oh, yeah, and this. So as we look at our passage today, whenever we get in the Word of God, whenever we get into His Word, it's kind of amazing because we have an encounter with the living God. And something amazing happens. And so the first thing that I thought about today as I was preparing this passage was a caterpillar. You've seen caterpillars. They're kind of ugly, right? They're not the most attractive. Um, they're not the most attractive insect to look at. You, you watch them, and they have to crawl on the ground, and they, they move slowly, and they, they're, they're not all attractive to look at. And their diet, uh, they're always eating leaves, it seems. And so caterpillars, they go through this process where they go into a chrysalis, and they actually decompose, right? And when they decompose, what happens is, is that the decomposure that takes place in that chrysalis, well, now the proteins form in a way that science is still having a hard time explaining. The proteins form, and now you have a butterfly, a beautiful butterfly, right? And butterflies are beautiful. All right, so you went from being this really, really uh, undesirable insect that was kind of just able to, like, inch your way in the ground very slowly, pretty pathetic to look at, um, and now you've become this beautiful butterfly, And we've used that example before, right? But what I was thinking of when I thought of the butterfly this week is that the butterfly is beautiful. And it's one of those, it's it's like when you look at the butterfly, you don't think about killing a butterfly. Not unless you're really touched, right? It's like the young Mansons might think about something like that. But when we look at a butterfly, we're not really thinking of hurting a butterfly. We'll capture the butterfly, but it's not like the mosquito. You have a mosquito on you, and what do you do? Well, you smack it, and, 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 and you destroy it, and there's blood all over the place, and it's kind of gross, so mosquitoes are gross. And then if there's a roach on the floor, what do we do? Well, we look, and we try to you know, hit it with our shoe or something like that. But you don't do that with a butterfly, Right? You wouldn't think to do that with a butterfly because butterflies are, are kind of beautiful. They, they look like they would make the world a better place, and they do because they have a purpose. When you think of butterflies, they pollinate or they carry pollen from plant to plant, helping fruits, vegetables, and flowers to produce new seeds. So it's beauty with a purpose, as a matter of fact. Beauty with a purpose. They're not just beautiful to look at. They have a reason that God placed them in this world. And so they help the fruits and the vegetables and the flowers to produce new seeds. As a matter of fact, when you see a butterfly, it's usually indicative of a healthy environment and a healthy ecosystem when you see the butterfly. Cool, huh? Now, here's what you have. You have some of the disciples today in our passage, and these guys are shut up in a room. These guys are shut up in a room, and they're hiding. They're about to have an encounter with Jesus, and after that encounter with Jesus, they're going to emerge as a group of men and women that will go into the world and turn the world upside down. The book of Acts says that they turned the world upside down. And so how did they do this? Well, we're going to take a look that today was the beginning of a journey. Once they realized that Jesus had been resurrected, once they realized that the power that was in the Savior, the power that was in the Messiah, we're going to see some verses today that we'll take a look at the disciples' experience and how they begin to emerge at this point and how God calls us to emerge so that we can not hide behind the things that we've been hiding behind, but we can go out into the world and we can be agents of change in this world. So it says here today, 
in our message that's called Guess Who's Back? And I wasn't talking about Anthony. Guess Who's Back? Jesus is back, okay? So verse 19 says, Then the same day at evening, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Stop right there. Let's unpack it. The disciples are afraid. It says here, the fear of the Jews. What's just happened has traumatized them. What's just happened has shaken their faith. And maybe you've had things like that that have happened to you recently. Something that has overcome you. A situation that didn't turn out the way that you quite expected it. And it kind of shook you to your core. Well, that's where they're at right now. If, you can, if you've ever been to that place, then you know exactly where these guys are at right now. They've had a series of circumstances that have happened where the Jewish leaders have manipulated the crowd and the Roman authorities and their Savior was just put on a cross and they watched Him take His last breath. They watched Him take His last breath. When they were walking with him, all they saw him do was good. All they saw him do was touch people that other people wouldn't touch, love people that other people wouldn't love, reach people that other people wouldn't reach. That's all they saw him do. And now what's happened is, is they've just watched him take his last breath on a cross, and it appears as if good has lost. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever looked on the internet or watched the news and you looked at it and you said, you know what? How could evil get a foothold like this? How could evil seem to be winning like this? And in that moment where the situation is greater than your God, here's what you see. You see this. You see that it appears as if the government, the Roman government, was greater than their Savior. It appears as if the Jewish leaders were greater than their Savior. It appears as if death was greater than their Savior. All these things appear to be greater than their Savior, so where are they? They are shut behind a door. Let me ask you something. What doors are you hiding behind because the challenges out there are greater than your God? What are the things that you've made greater than your God? What are those things? You see, for each person here, you might have something in common, but for each one here, quite honestly, it's something different. Some of you here are really okay. You're, you're in a financial bind, but you're really kind of cool with it. <laughs> you know, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm good with it. Hey, all's good. Some of you here, it's relational woes. You sit here and it's like, you know, your, your relationship likes all the, looks like all the king's horses and all the king's men are not going to be able to put this relationship back together again, and it's weighing on you, and that's become bigger than your God. So it can be financial. It can be relationships. It can be job-related. It can be addiction. Whatever it is, that thing... We can make it bigger than our God. Can we make it bigger than our God? We make it bigger than our God. Check it out, folks. When you look at the sun, please don't look at it directly. When you look at the sun, you can fit 1,300,000 earths inside of the sun. Is that impressive? 1,300,000 earths you can fit inside of the sun. But here's what you can do when you go outside today. You can take a quarter out of your pocket, okay? And when you take that quarter out of your pocket, you can squint and you can hold the quarter up wherever the sun is, and you'll cover it up with a quarter as massive as the sun is. 
See, the disciples are hiding because the situation is greater than their Savior. But it says here in that same verse, it says that as the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Check it out. Here's what you have. In the midst of their fear, you have his presence. And you've never lost it. You've never lost it. The situation can sometimes appear to be bigger than your God, but Jesus is there. As a matter of fact, he's inside of you, Christian. He's inside of you. The same God. He's standing in the midst of of the place that they're afraid. They're gathered in fear. He knows what you're afraid of. You think he doesn't? No, no. He knows exactly what it is that you're afraid of. And he's standing right there with you so you can have confidence in him. We had a situation in a house that we had a few years ago. And there were lots and lots and lots of rats in our attic. Now, there are a couple of things that Pastor John is afraid of. One is frogs. You know that. All right, but the other is rats. I do not like them. All right, when we, when we took down the attic, when we pulled the attic thing down, there was all sorts of evidence that there were a lot of rats up there. So Tiffany said, are you going up? No, I am not. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call my friend Charlie, and Charlie's like a man's man. You know, Charlie works for FPNL. Charlie's got the pickup truck. He's got the work boots the dungarees, and when Charlie comes over, he's got his flashlight, he's like, all right, it's time for us to uh, go up in that attic. I'm like, all right, you first, (laughs) all right? So the brother goes up there, and he goes up there, and he's got a little flashlight, and as he shines that flashlight, he's like, well, I see a possum up here, then there's a few rats that I see up here. I'm like, whoa, I'm not going, all right? But I was more comfortable in back of him than I would have been in front of him. Now, listen, whatever it is that you're afraid of, Whatever it is that you're afraid of in this life, Jesus is right there in our midst. That's the first thing. It's the first of five Ps we're going to look at. We have his presence. You have the presence of the living God with you, no matter what it is you're going through. But so often we forget. So often we kind of like do with Jesus like what we do with that quarter in the sun. We kind of cover him up. And we don't expose ourselves to him. And we're not in his word and we're not with him. But he knows firsthand what you're afraid of. That's why he became a man. He became a man so we have a sympathetic high priest. So whatever it is that you're going through, there's nothing that he can't relate to, nothing he can't understand. And as a matter of fact, the reason he came was so that he could flip the script. Remember we said that for the Jews, for the disciples that were hiding in that room, the government was greater than their God. The Jewish leaders were greater than their God. Death was greater than their God. But Jesus comes along and he flips the script. Well, they couldn't kill him. The door can't hold him out. Right? So he flips the script. And so it shows that their Savior is greater than their government. Try that one on for size in your Facebook posts. Your Savior is greater than your government. The Savior was greater than the religious leaders. The Savior was greater than death. What are you afraid of again? See, if most, it's been well said that, that the things that people are afraid of most are death, if not your own, than that of a loved one, and then public speaking. And God is greater than both. 
All right, his presence. We have his presence. There was this false Facebook meme that says, did you know that in the Bible, you know, it says, do not be afraid 365 times, and that's one time for every day of the year. No, it really doesn't read like that. All right, there are about 365 more than that that talk about fear, but they don't all pertain to us, and they're not all do not be afraid. But you have about 80 that say don't be afraid, and they do pertain to you, 80. And if God said it once, that would be enough, right? If God said it once, he said, listen, I don't want you to be afraid. Do you remember what he said to Joshua? Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be of good courage, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, and that's enough for us to hang on to. It's enough because he's with us. I want to give you a great example of this. I want you to keep your place in John. I want you to go back to the book of Daniel. It's chapter 3. And you don't have to know the whole story. But if you've heard about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were told that if they did not worship other gods, if they did not bow to an idol when the music played, they were told, if they didn't, that they would be thrown into a fiery furnace. Do you remember this story? A lot of us heard it in Sunday school when we were kids. And if you haven't heard the story, and if you're not familiar with it, that's okay too. All you have to know is that three men of God were told if you do not bow to the idol, that you're going to be thrown into a fire, and that's exactly what happened. King Nebuchadnezzar threw them into a fire. So it's chapter 3, verse 19, and it reads like this. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and they were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent, the furnace was heated exceedingly hot. The flame of the fire killed the people that threw them in. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 23, fell down, bound in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished as he rose in haste and spoke, saying to the counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men look loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like what? It's like a son of God. Who's with them in the fire? Who's with them in the fire? Who's with us through our fires and through our struggles? Jesus, that same Jesus. That same God is with us. So what are we afraid of? Why is it that we're at somebody's house and we say, you know what, I, I kind of feel like I want to pray before the meal, but I don't want to insult them and I don't want to look like a Jesus freak and I don't want to look silly. Who cares? How big is your God? How big is He? What is it the thing right now that you're taking a look at in your life and you're saying, well, that's, that's too big. God can't do that. I'm afraid of this. That's not our God. That's not our God. But the enemy is so tricky, isn't he? Isn't he tricky? One of the things that I wrote here in my notes is that it's like, he wants us to sometimes think that no one's watching so that we'll do whatever we want. But what he'll also do is he'll take the opposite 
And then he wants us to think that everybody's watching to prevent us from doing the thing that we should be doing. Man, he's tricky. And he wants you to think that whatever that presence is, that it's greater than your God. Is it greater than your God? No. No, Christian, it's not. His presence. The problem is, is that because of sin in the world, it's kind of looking in, our, our life is kind of looking at carnival mirrors. Have you ever been to like the carnival and they've got those mirrors that it makes your nose look this big and your chin look, look a lot bigger than it really is? You know, <laughs> you look and you see, all right, you've got, you're all distorted when you look in the mirror. Nothing looks right. That's what the enemy wants to prevent us from. He wants to prevent us from seeing that our God is with us and, that he, and what he thinks of us and what he hopes for us and what his promises are. The enemy wants to eclipse that. But Jesus appears in their midst to the disciples. And how do you think they felt? They thought he was dead, man. They thought he was dead. But Jesus has overcome. And he's in the midst despite their fear. If you're afraid, he knows you're afraid. You don't have to pretend not to be afraid. But when his presence is with us, we're reminded of the promise that says the perfect love casts out all fear. So verse 19, it says that he came and stood in the midst. And so it's not only the fact that he was there, but it's what he says to them. Listen to what he says. He says, peace be with you. Peace. He comes into the situation that is a storm, that is turmoil, and what does he want to interject? His peace. Is there anybody in this room that could use a little bit more peace that you have in your life right now? You could use just a touch more. Have you tried to find your peace in the wrong places? Like maybe vacation. Oh, yes. We'll go on vacation. All right, but then after you get back from vacation, here's what you have. You've got 300 emails. All right, you've got 100 people that tried to call you while you were on vacation. Nobody did your work while you were gone. And so when they didn't do their work when you were gone, you came home and you had all this left to do, and now it was worse that you went away. It was only a false sense of peace. It was a false sense of peace, and that's all the earth, and that's all the world can really give us is a false sense of peace. Where do we get our peace? Our peace is a person. So when Jesus stands up in the middle of the storm that the disciples are in, he says, peace be still. Peace be still. And what happens? The storm ceases. The storm, the storm stops. Because he's got that kind of power. And there's nothing that's going on in your life right now that if Jesus comes in and he says, you know what, I want to bring peace, there's nothing that can hold him back from that. There's nothing that can stop him except us from, from bringing that peace into our lives. Now, as I thought about this, I thought about something that Paul wrote in his letters. Do you remember in almost every letter, Paul writes something interesting. He says, grace and what? Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace. And that word for peace there, it's significant because even in the, Jew, in, even in the Greek language, it has this sense of saying, okay, to join or bind together that which has been separated. Literally pictures of binding or joining together again of something that has been separated or divided. Something that's been separated or divided, well, when they talk about peace, when they talk about, talk about that word shalom, what it is, it's that special peace that can bring it all back together, that can make the whole thing make sense again. And so Paul says, grace and peace to you. And it's interesting that he puts those two words together because grace was a Greek introduction. And this word that said grace, it was like a lovely word. The basic idea of it was joy and pleasure 
brightness and beauty. And so when you put the two together, it's this amazing combo. It's like, hey, who put your chocolate in my peanut butter? Who put your peanut butter in my chocolate? And now you come out with a Reese's peanut butter cup. Check this out. Much better. Okay, it says, so when Paul prays for grace and peace on his people, he's praying that they should have the joy of knowing God. Listen. The joy of knowing God as Father and peace of being reconciled to God. That's peace. Being reconciled with God. Being made one because we were separate. And now peace, shalom, that peace that comes in. The peace of being reconciled to God, to men and to themselves. And that grace and peace can come only through Jesus Christ. That grace and peace come only through Him. And so Paul writes again in the letter to the Colossians 3.15. It says, let the peace of Christ rule your heart. Is that what's ruling your heart right now? Or is there a person that is taking your peace? Does anybody in here, and don't say their names out loud for the love of God, don't do it. But do you have somebody in here right now that is taking your peace away? Get them off the throne of your heart. Let the peace of Christ rule your heart. A pastor friend of mine once took that verse and he said, listen, let God be the umpire. Let him call the balls and strikes. Let him call them. Take that off of yourself. Let the peace of Christ take every thought into captivity so that nothing can take that peace away because most of us have something, something that we give that kind of power, that we give that kind of juice to to take our peace away. But it says, let the peace of Christ rule your heart. So it's not only the fact that Jesus is there with them, but it's what he says to them. It's not only the fact that he's there, but it's what he says to them. Listen, peace be with you. He'll repeat that in a couple of moments. Verse 20, we move on. So so, so the first thing we have is the presence, and now he imparts peace. Verse 20, it says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Okay, so now he gives them the proof. They weren't seeking proof, but he showed them proof. Thomas is going to come along, and this is next week's lesson, and Thomas is going to say, unless I see it, I'm not going to believe it. No. At this moment, Jesus, they're there, and Jesus says, peace, and now he's going to give them proof to soothe and calm their character. Here's the proof. What is the proof that he's offering? Here are the holes in my hands. Here's my side. This is me. This is the proof. This is all the proof you need. And what is it proof of? It's proof of his power, yes? It's proof that he was not conquered by death. That the nails couldn't hold him to the cross. They couldn't keep him there. But it's also proof of his love. When they look at those scars, those scars are proof of his love. I'd read a story recently about a man and a woman and they were out walking and they were caught in a hailstorm hail was the size of baseballs and the man realized that if he didn't do something he was with his wife that his wife would be severely hurt he he quickly draped himself over his wife covering her with his own body so that instead of the storm hitting his wife it hit him the hailstone seemed to get bigger as the man bent over his wife protecting her the large Pieces of hail came down harder onto the man. They hurt him badly. After a couple of minutes, his ears started bleeding along the same spots on his head. The man tried to lead his wife to safety, but the stones were coming out faster and harder, and the pounding stones took their toll. Weakened by the onslaught, the man finally collapsed over his wife. 
only able to shield her from the danger. After the storm was over, the man was left with scars from where the balls of hail had battered away at him. The remnants of sores, cuts, and abrasions would forever be reminders to him of that day he saved his wife. This is a true story. On the local newscast, the man's wife was asked how she felt about their experience. She said, every time I look at that scar on his head, on his neck, on his ear, every time I look at that, I love him more. Every time I see the scar, I love him more because he sacrificed himself for me. That was the proof. Every time she looked at those scars. So let me ask you something. When you get in front of your Savior, when you take a look at what we've studied over the last few weeks, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and we realize that one day we're going to be in heaven. Our scars are going to be gone, but he's still going to have his, and that's going to be proof of love, man. Proof of love. Proof of love. You want more proof? Do you need more proof? Do you want more proof of God? Look around. There is no greater proof of God than changed lives. Gang, that's you. There's no greater proof of God than changed lives. And the changed lives gather here from all all different walks of life, all different sorts of struggles. That's you. That's you. That's proof. He gives us all the proof we need for the people that are really looking. But here's the thing. If you're only looking for proof, you may miss the person. But if you go looking for the person, you'll always find the proof. If you go looking for the person, you will always find the proof. So we have his presence. He imparts peace. He gives them proof. And now verse 21, it says, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Stop right there. Here's the next thing he gives them. Okay, I know you're hiding. I know you've been afraid, but I'm back. I overcame death. And now what I'm going to give to you is purpose. Purpose. There's power in purpose, right? There's power when somebody has purpose in their life. And so he says, listen, as the Father sent me, now I'm going to be sending you. The church is called the hands and feet of Christ. Why? We're called the hands and feet of Christ because we're the hands and feet of Christ. That's why. All right? Because you're the hands and feet of Christ. He put His Spirit in you so that we could go out there and continue the work that He started by loving people, by forgiving people, by showing them the fruit. And we're going to talk about this more in a second, but He gave purpose, mission. And you're like, I really wish I could find the reason that I'm here. Everybody wants a sense of purpose, no? Everybody wants that sense of understanding, why have I been placed on this planet? Why am I here? Some of you in this room have really found it, and some of you in this room are searching for it, but everyone here can find it as long as we align ourselves with His purpose. What did the Son of Man come to do? He came to seek and save that which was lost. That was His purpose. That was His purpose. But until we align ourselves with God, we're kind of like that sailboat, and it's put out in the middle of the ocean, and and it never raises its sail. What happens if the sailboat never raises its sail? It's always going to get bounced back and forth between circumstances, kind of like us, right? So if you don't put the sail up, the sailboat's never going to do what it was made to do. But also, if you raise the sail and you don't know which direction to point it, well, then it's never going to do what it was made to do either. What about you? Are you being called to say, listen, I've pursued my own purposes, I've pursued my own dreams, 
But what if God has something better? What if he has something more? What if he has something different? And I never bothered to go to the author of life, and so I never found out the reason that he put me here. He's the author. He has a purpose. And believe me, people want to find it. A book came out in 2002 called The Purpose-Driven Life. Between 2002 and 2007, do you know how many copies of that book sold? 30 million. Why? Because people were looking for purpose. And as soon as they saw that title, purpose-driven, maybe I could find my purpose. Listen, gang, if you want to find your purpose, open up the book. Not that book, this book. The Word of God. Because when you see what's important to God and that starts becoming important to you, you will indeed find your purpose. You will indeed find what you were put here to do. It says in the book of Acts that when the disciples, when the Spirit fell on them, these men and women, again, they turned the world upside down. But sometimes I think that we forget our purpose. What if God had a purpose for your life? What if he had a mission and a calling for your life and you missed it the whole time? Sad, right? There's a news commentator that used to be on years ago, Dan Rather, said he had a good way of keeping his professional objective always in his mind. He says he looks often at a question he's written on three slips of paper. He keeps one in his billfold, one in his pocket, and one on his desk. And the probing question forces him to ask himself this. Is what you are doing now helping the broadcast? I think that's pretty reasonable. Is what you're doing now helping the broadcast? So in other words, if you're the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, is what you're doing, if, if he's put you here to blast out that broadcast... If he's put you here for that purpose to be his representative, is what we're doing glorifying him, honoring him? Is it in line with furthering his mission, not your own? And here's where most people struggle with this. Most people will say, but pastor, I have these dreams. I have these things that I want to do. I I, I don't know if this is what God wants, but I know that this is what he wants me to do. And you've convinced yourself that you have a better plan than he has. You've convinced yourself that you have a better plan and that, well, if, if, if I go walk with Jesus and if I go pursue that purpose for my life, it'll mean giving up some things that are, how do you know what it's going to mean giving? Right now, aligning yourself with him, what if he's going to use those very things in a way that's going to touch someone for all of eternity and use it for a greater purpose than you had ever anticipated? What if? That's purpose, man. That, you want to talk about purpose? That's purpose. But he's telling them this. He says, as the Father sent me, I also send you. Do you know how massive of a task this was that he was sending them on? He was going to say, listen, go bring my word into Judea, Samaria, into the ends of the, into the, ends of the earth. This is before internet. This is before cell phones. This is before telephones. Okay, he gives them this massive, amazing, crazy mission. And here's this purpose. But wouldn't that be terrible if you had this great mission 
and you were given this great assignment and you weren't given what you needed to fulfill it? Have you ever had a boss that said, listen, I want you to do this, 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 and this, and they didn't give you the tools you needed to finish the job? If you've ever experienced that or, or you were in school and the teacher gave you a test and you're like, well, you didn't give me what I needed to pass this test. You didn't prepare us rightly for it. That's not God. He gives us this purpose, but then here's what he does. It says here in verse 22, and when he had said this to them, listen, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Receive ye the Spirit. What happens in that moment? Well, they had been walking with Jesus, right? They'd been walking with Him. And now He was saying, receive the Spirit. So in other words, they were going to be given the Holy Spirit. Jesus was going to be living inside of them. The power of the Holy Spirit living in them. See, there are three functions of the Holy Spirit. And the first is when the Holy Spirit, kind of like, like the disciples were walking with Jesus, He would tell them what to do. He would instruct them where to go. But now for us, what it looks like is this. That whole time, it's like the Holy Spirit for us is that voice that said, listen, you need God. You need church. You need what the pastor's talking about today. That's the Holy Spirit coming alongside you. But now the disciples, Jesus said, receive ye the Spirit. What's happened is, is that the Holy Spirit has come into them. That's the salvation experience that happens to us the moment we say, listen, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. You've confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you believe that God the Father raised Him from the dead. That's what happens here. They have the power of the living God inside of them. And it's power that does what? It's power that forgives sins. Your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. The moment you ask Jesus to come into your heart, you have been pronounced innocent in the throne of heaven. Your sins have been forgiven. That's an amazing thing that happens in that moment. But here's what else happens. In that moment, because He's living inside of you, you've been given the fruit of the Spirit. You've been given the ability to display the character of Christ to this world so that you can be loving and you can be peaceful and you can be joyful. That's what happens in that moment. You have the ability to do that because He's living inside of you. So the forgiveness of sins, the fruit of the Spirit, but you also have this. And don't forget this, gang. You're also given freedom from strongholds because you have the same power that overcame the grave living inside of you. You have that Jesus living inside of you. You have the freedom over the strongholds. But you'd be like, Pastor, but I keep struggling with the same sin. But yet the Bible says no temptation has overcome you except that which is common to man. It also says sin has no dominion over you. So then why am I battling? Why are you battling? That moment he said, receive ye the Spirit. You were given forgiveness of sins. We have the fruit of the Spirit. We have freedom from strongholds, but I'm still struggling with these strongholds, still struggling with these sins and these temptations. Why? Because we forget who's living inside of us, and we don't submit to him, and we forget that he's there. I was watching a movie with my son recently, Dumbo. Dumbo, and do you remember Dumbo's problem? Dumbo doesn't believe he can fly. He's got these mondo colosso ears, and he doesn't believe he can fly until, until some of these birds, they come up and they say, well, listen, just put a magic feather in your snout, and you know, then there you can fly. Well, one day as Dumbo's performing in the circus, here's what happens. He jumps off the platform, right, and he loses the feather. 
what happens is he starts plummeting to the ground. He starts plummeting to the ground. And then what you have is Timothy Mouse whispering in his ear, listen, you didn't need that in the first place. You had everything that you needed within you to overcome, to be able to fly. And when Dumbo realizes it, I was watching the clip this morning as I was coming to church. What happens is it's like he's plummeting towards the ground. And then, man, in a, in a moment that gives me goosebumps all over the place, holy goosebumps, he goes, zoom, and he, he swoops up and he flies, man. And then he goes after everyone. <laughs> Dumbo's revenge, right? All right, but, but here's the thing. We kind of forget We forget that you have the power of Christ living inside of you that gives us the power to overcome, to display Christ to the wanton world. That you've been forgiven of sins. You're no longer slaves to fear. You are children of God. So what happens next? The disciples are given the power, right? So we've gone on this journey with them today where we've seen that at first they had the presence of God. Then they have the peace of God. Then they have the proof. Then they have the purpose, but now they have the power. Really? Do they? Do they? Do you know what their very next decision is after this? You'll see it in the next chapter. Their very next decision after this moment? Peter grabs the boys and says, Dude, let's go fishing. Let's go fishing. What are they doing? They're going right back to what they were doing before they met him. They go fishing. No, they've been given new life. And sometimes I think we forget that we've been given that new life. How does it work? How does this new life work? I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but I want to read something. That when God breathes into your life, When God breathes into your life, this is kind of like what happens. This is a physical explanation or a physical kind of example. It says in Ezekiel 37, The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out out in the Spirit of the Lord, and He set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live, and I will put sinews on you, and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling And the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin was covered over, but there was no breath in them. There was no breath in them. Kind of like we were spiritually dead, right? We were spiritually dead, and here's what happens. Verse 9, it says, Also he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, Prophesy, Son of Man. 
and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, the Ruha of God, and breathe on these slain, and they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Stop right there. The dry bones have been brought to life. So what is it that has been dead has now been brought to life? That's what he did for us. This is what... The Savior, this Jesus did for us. You felt you were dead man walking. And Jesus came, and just like he did to the disciples, receive ye the Holy Spirit. But the disciples went back to fishing. So what is this power that we're talking about? There's something that happens after they're saved. After that salvation moment where he says, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And I want you to see this because you need to see this because this is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit and this is the next work of the Holy Spirit. So there's that time when the Holy Spirit was walking with us. Now there's that moment that you're saved and Jesus is living inside of us. But I want you to check out something. Turn in your Bibles now. This is the last place we'll look today. It's Acts. It's chapter 1. And it starts in verse 4. This is Jesus appearing to the disciples after his resurrection. And it says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You shall be. Not you have been already, but you shall be. You shall be baptized. Therefore, when they had come together and they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times nor the seasons which the father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Verse 8, check it out. It's important. It says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. Not you've already been made witnesses, but you shall be. And that's what happens at Pentecost, and that's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's when the Holy Spirit comes upon the believer and gives us power for works so that we can go out and bring the gospel into the world. That's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not taught in the church today. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that moment in the believer's life. Some people have received it the moment that they came to Jesus. For some people, it happens much later. Some people get this warm, fuzzy feeling, I experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And some people don't feel anything at all. Where you see the evidence is in the life. As they go out and minister the Word of God in the world, that's the power for the mission that we've been given is in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So what you've seen are a group of people that once that baptism falls on them, then they become the group of people that's going to turn the world upside down. Upside down. Because it's the breath of heaven now living inside of them. Now as I was thinking about this today, I... uh, I was blessed particularly by a week or so ago, Billy and Matthias, our worship guys, they, uh, they did a song up here for us called How Great Thou Art. And when they did this song, I thought about 
my walk with God. When I was 11 years old, I had started playing the saxophone, and it kind of sounded like a squeaking duck. All right, it was not a pleasant sound. And one day I heard a guy playing, and the guy that I heard playing was a master of the saxophone. This guy was amazing, and so I started taking lessons. But here I was at 11 in the church. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just learning the fingerings, and it was... And, you know, the congregation was nice, but if you've been in a small church, sometimes the special music in those small churches are the kind, you know, you're just sitting there going, okay, Lord, I know this is a blessing, but please let the blessing end. You know, and, and so that's how it was with me. When I was playing, I know that the congregation was saying, okay, this is cute, he's 11, he wants to play the saxophone, he wants to play for Jesus. All right, but I learned how to play. And as I learned how to play, it became a priority to me. And as I was looking for a better horn, I was about 15, and I had a few hundred dollars, and I found an ad in the Craigslist. No, that wasn't around when I was 15. It was the Penny Saver, all right? I had, we had the, the Penny Saver, and I found a Selmer for $300, this old horn. $300. This horn should have been about $3,000. And you look at it and you say, I don't think that that horn is worth $3,000, Pastor. Because when you see it, all you see is that the lacquer is off of it. All you see is that it isn't shining. But I had been taught to look at something differently. And this horn, when I went to the, the folks' house, while well, the man that had played had not played this horn for about 20 years. He had emphysema. This horn had been locked up for about 20 years and nobody had played it. But I opened up the case and I saw something kind of neat. I saw it had the signature of the maker of the saxophone on it. Henry Selmer. It had his autograph etched in it. Selmer's autograph etched in the horn. This man knew what he was doing when he put this horn here and yet nobody had played this horn. So now I picked up the horn and now I started breathing into it. And this horn that had been dormant for so long that looked beat up that many people would have thrown away. Many people would have written this off if they didn't know what to look for. I knew what to look for. This was made by Selmer himself. I knew what to look for. And now when I breathe into the horn, now the horn is doing the thing that it was made to do. Is that you? 